everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Rapping with Reef Bum. I'm your host, Keith Berkelhammer, and we got a few folks that have joined us tonight. Thanks, everybody, for uh, tuning into the live stream. Great Bearded Reef is back with us again. Absolute Carrot. And uh, Dimitri Tumanoff, thanks, Dimitri, for tuning in once again. Rick G, I see, Planet 3D, Calypso's Reef, and all these other folks tuning in. So thank, thank you, everybody. Well, tonight we got a, another great show in store and it is my pleasure to welcome Greg Hiller. Greg has been active in the reef keeping hobby since 1996. He has raised several species of marine fish and propagated dozens of species of soft and hard corals. He actually has a few SPS corals named after him. The, uh, the Aqua Delight is one of my personal favorites. Greg is a founding member of the Boston Reefer Society, BRS, and is a frequent monthly meeting speaker, helping to educate and contribute to the success of many Boston area hobbyists. Greg holds a PhD in chemical biochemical engineering from UC Berkeley, which he believes has contributed to his success in the reef keeping hobby. Greg has also authored a number of articles for online hobbyist publications, most dealing with chemistry aspects of the hobby. He currently works for a major bi biotechnology company in the bioreactor process development group. Greg really uh, focuses on the scientific and bioengineering part of the hobby, so that's really an interesting perspective, and, and I'm really excited to have you, Greg, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Keith. Great to be here. Digging that, digging that shirt there. Science will win. That's right. Pfizer <laughs> vaccine's coming, man. Hold your breath. Any inside, any inside poop on that? Well, it's all public information, but, uh, you know, it looks like the vaccine may be here. Well, you know, they'll have a readout on the efficacy within a few weeks, probably. Uh, it all depends upon how many people get sick in the placebo arm, really. Well, fingers crossed that something will uh, will happen, whether it's with Pfizer or another company. Yep. And, uh, yep. yeah, the sooner the many better. Shots on, as many shots on both, so somebody will probably yep. come. There you go. But uh, no, listen, Greg. Thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate this. I know you were uh, you were hustling uh, back home to to get onto the live stream, and you made it in the nick of time. But, yeah, I was um, hand gliding. You were, you were hand gliding, seriously? Yes, I was. Cool. I've never tried that, and I don't think I ever will. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. It's fun. Um, so one thing, Greg, I didn't mention in your bio was that <clears throat> many years ago, in the early days of reef keeping, you used CompuServe's fishnet forum as a troubleshooting resource and you know this uh this helped you achieve and i'm quoting here from your reef keeping magazine bio such yeah. rapid coral growth in his tanks that he needed to learn and develop techniques of coral propagation slash fragmentation so can you kind of delve into that a little bit in terms of the uh the early days in CompuServe's fishnet forum and and how that helped you Sure. So, I mean, <clears throat> it was really amazing, you know, you know, in the early days of the Internet when it was actually first functioning and, and I went in online and, and started meeting all these people. And I was amazed that, you know, it was a lot of the people that were writing the books in the day and, and had fantastic knowledge, you know, uh, Julian Sprung, Charles Delbeek was there, Greg Scheimer. Mike Paletta, and then uh, at one point in time, I, I met somebody uh, by the name of Randy, and I was like, and I realized he probably lived close to me, and, and, I, and I read some of his uh, uh, posts, and I thought to myself, God, this guy sounds like he has a PhD in chemistry, 
you know, and then eventually I, I realized he lived in the Boston area. And I said, hey, I'd like to come over and see you. And, and, and we struck up a great friendship. So that was Randy Holmes Farley. And, and then I realized, yeah, he does, in fact, have a Ph.D. in chemistry. <laughs> so uh, so, yeah, we've been, uh, you know, part of the hobby for a long time in the Boston area. He lives in the Arlington area. So is that kind of like how you got to start in the hobby in, in terms of uh, <clears throat> the CompuServe days? Or was there some a, another story before that that kind of got yeah, you well, uh, jazzed it, about it? Yeah, it comes down to, you know, we moved into uh, a new house and it was like 93 and uh, well, actually it was 94, I guess. And, uh, you know, we had a fair amount of space. Yeah, we didn't have hardly any furniture because I just got out of graduate school practically. And... Uh, we had some large stretches along the wall, and I said to my wife, look, you know, we could put a fish tank along this wall. You know, I had I had freshwater fish for many years, and they did really well. And she said, well, yeah, but freshwater fish are ugly, she said. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, huh, all right, yeah, I always thought about doing salt water, but never did. And so I figured I'd just start reading up on it, and that's really, you know. Uh, and then I first set up a tank that was, you know, kind of the classic 1970s uh fish only system with all these bleached corals you know and just sand yep. and, and and it was yep. you know it was it was pleasant but but you know algae grew on everything quickly there was nothing you could do about that and it just seemed you always had to bleach the corals right to get the algae out yeah you right? bleach the corals and re-clean everything and the fish were always kind of sick and they didn't feel very good and it was just kind of fighting nature the whole time and that's when uh i set up a a 65-gallon uh, reef tank. Was, uh, we went down to Florida and we picked up some live rock. I think it was probably Indo-Pacific live rock. And we set up a tank and, and we put that live rock in. And I just could not believe all the things growing on that live rock. Just, you know, all these barnacles going at it and filter-feeding organisms and things were cru cruising around on the rock everywhere. And it turns out we, of course, had a, a mantis shrimp, as a lot of people did back these, those days. Uh, which we had to eventually get out. But it was just so fascinating to go down and look at that system with so much life in it compared to, you know, the fish-only system with all those bleached corals and fish that just weren't feeling well. So I slowly converted that fish <clears throat> system uh, to a reef system and then put really bright lights over it um, and, and, it was, and then it started, it was, a, it was an acrylic tank and it started mm. to crack Ooh. at the top. Oof. I was like, oh, no, this is like <laughs> rushed to go get another tank. So it was, you know, it didn't crack all the way. But, you know, we had to rush around to do some of this stuff, which was not optimal. And in the long run, I transferred everything. I mean, that slowly became a, a reef system and stuff was growing to the surface. So we we eventually uh, uh, bought a 400, well, an eight, eight foot by six foot by 30 inch high system. Uh, and set that up and, and did it, you know, more carefully that time and then transferred everything over to that system and, and, and got everything established. And, and that system has done has, has done very well. It's had a few setbacks, but it's done extremely well. And now Greg was also kind enough to um, to shoot some video of his tanks. And, and we're going to we're going to take a look at that and talk about it. But, um, Greg, I want to talk about one thing you mentioned, which is, um, you know, when you first got the the, uh, the reef tank and you got live rock and went down to Florida and you had all these, um, you know, little critters and microorganisms and, and what have you. And, and it, it's interesting today, you know, I would say 
most likely the majority of people that are starting tanks are starting with, with dry rock. And um, I did that once. I, you know, the viewers know I, I've, I've talked about this. I've, I've been in reef keeping for 25 plus years myself, and I've always started my tanks with live rock. Five years ago, I started a, a tank with dry rock for the first time, and I just had one problem after another, and I ended up rebooting the tank after two years because I just got frustrated with the um, with the slow <clears throat> process and and all the um, you know um, the bad stuff that came along with the dry rock in terms of the algae and and the uh, the dinos and you name it, bacterial blooms I had it. But um, I just started another tank, a 225-gallon peninsula tank, and I started that with live rock. And, uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I got it shipped in water from, um, you know, up from Florida. And Tampa Bay? Was it Tampa Bay saltwater? No, it was um, TB Aquatics. Okay. And um, so the tank cycled in about a week. You know, it's got feather dusters on it. It's got little, I, I did have a mantis shrimp in there, but what I did was I, um, you know, I soaked the rock on three different occasions for like a minute in, in very high, um, you know, salinity salt water mm. to, uh, to kind of flush out those critters. So I had a whole bunch of pistol shrimp and, and the mantis shrimp and, and um, some bristle um, uh, starfish, which I kept, but I didn't kill all the uh, the other critters that I didn't put back in my tank. I took them to a uh, local fish <laughs> store. I donated them, but you know, I just wanted to um, to speak to that in terms of how I, I think it's really so cool to start a tank with live rock. I know it's tough to get these days, but um, the majority yeah, I mean, of people do start tanks with dry rock. What what are your thoughts on starting a tank with dry rock versus live rock? So absolutely, uh, with dry rock is perfectly fine, uh, and so my four hundred gallon system. It was mostly dry rock, but you just got to be more patient. So, you know, but the important thing, of course, is to seed that with, with good things from, from other tanks, you know, to get the sponges in there and all the filter feeding critters. And, and generally they propagate along, you know, so I've only ever bought and bought probably 40 pounds of dry rock in, in all that time. That was in the 65 gallon system many, many years ago. And I had no idea, you know, what rocks pieces anymore were live rock or anything like that but but the dry rock in my big 400 gallon system is just loaded with sponges and all kinds of critters so you know it's just a question i think everything kind of ends up at a certain place if you start with live rock or you start with dead rock in time you know a lot of the things on live rock just won't survive long term they were exciting to look at when i was first starting out and that was fun but a lot of those things will decline and a lot of the things on the dry rock will kind of, you know, will kind of end up encrusting and eventually you kind of end up almost at the same place in the long run because there's just things that we don't provide in our systems. Unless you're like squirting microalgae in all the time and, and trying to add marine snow or something like that. I think a lot of that stuff is just going to, it's just not going to survive long term. It's just so hard because we just don't have infinite amounts of water. and you know. Right. So we have more uh, we have more folks tuning in and 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 please uh, everybody uh, feel free to to pipe in with some questions. This is a a great opportunity to uh, you know to have a conversation here with with Greg and I got plenty of yeah. questions myself and and we'd like to encourage you guys um, you know putting some comments in the chat section. Retro Reefs is uh, saying um, Greg that tell tell Greg my reef mentor Bob Stark has great things to say about him. <laughs> Great. So, you know, one more thing I'd like to say about the, the, the whole live rock versus, uh, you know, dead rock systems. If you get really good live rock, 
you know, sometimes you, I mean, as I recall, actually, I had a fair amount of trouble with, with cyanobacteria and things like that, because what would happen is there would be uh, uh, clams and really large organisms that were encrusted or just part of the rock, and they would die, and then they would release all these nutrients, and you'd have growths around them. So, you know, there's good and there's bad about that. If you've had the dry rock for long enough, and everything has kind of, kind of come to some equilibrium, that's one thing, but... When things are big in there and they long-term just won't survive and then they die, that's not good. Or if you have some kind of, you know, you had yours moved in, in water and that's great. But if not, and you have a bunch of sponge dye, whenever you add nutrients to the water, it's just a bad, bad scene. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, it, it definitely makes it tough. And, and um, you know, I think one of the big uh, pluses that people think with dry rock, well, one is that you could really sculpt a pretty interesting aquascape out of the water. You could take your time doing that where live rock, you, you really can't do that, you know, and, and, um, you know, then there's other things with, uh, with dry rock. And I mean, people say that it's great because it comes without pests and all that stuff. And that's true. But, um, you know, when I did start my dry rock only tank, I eventually did get pests because they did hitchhike in on some of the, uh, you know, base of corals in terms of rock and the, the right. coral skeleton. So, it's not a uh, complete 100% um, guarantee you're not going to have pests with a dry rock only tank you start. But uh, yeah, right. yep, yep. yeah. I mean, there's stuff will come in from all kinds of ways, and and you know, in reality, if you're going to have a natural tank, you know, many forms of algae are going to come in, and you're just going to have to find a way to deal with those one way or another. So you know, I mean, I I feel like uh, baloney is just inevitability is going to come in on something and there's not much you're going to be doing do about that. Um, but I've had actually very good So I've had a lot of problems with bryopsis in my big system. Um, and then I had a, I had an anemone die a few years ago and that added a lot of nutrients to the system. But in the long run, uh, I found that these big urchins would really, you know, grind away at that and, and made a huge difference in the long run. Um, so, so one thing I, I haven't mentioned in a while, so there was a time when I was propagating the uh, Magnifica anemones, and so I had some split naturally on me, and then I, in a few cases, I actually sliced them open because one had come onto my, onto the glass, and I was like, well, Whoa. it's kind of, it's kind of uh, inviting me to slice it up, right, if it's right on the glass, and I did that a few times, uh, and a few times successfully. Um, but eventually I added another large anemone, uh, Randy Holmes Farley was getting rid of his really big, large, uh, uh, teal carpet anemone. And I took that from him and, and I don't know if this is, I've heard people say this before, two anemones in a tank that are not the same one don't necessarily get along. And in the long run, the, the Magnifica declined and then it, then it finally moved down into the rock work. And I thought, well, maybe it'll come back out, but yeah, no, it just, eventually just disintegrated there and then distributed all of its nutrients into the water. Mm. Just, just not a good thing. Not a good thing. Do you, do you um, recommend adding an anemone to a, um, a tank kind of like at the beginning, you know, if you add an anemone to a tank with chock full of corals, it could uh, move around and sting some stuff. Is that, um, or you just kind of have to roll the dice with those things and keep you, your fingers crossed. You have crossed. to roll the dice. You have yeah. to roll the dice. I mean, you know, you have to decide what's the important critter in your tank, right? For any of these things, you have to say, well, this is really important to me and this is not so much. I mean, you know, most SPS corals, 
will grow back. You know, you, you, you and, and if an anemone burns a little bit here and it burns a little bit there, it usually doesn't cause a catastrophe. You know, and sometimes if you really like one coral, it's safer to have it in a few different spots in the tank, at least a fragment or two on the chance that it's, you know, coral disease is a lot of times they start on one colony and for some reason they just move across that colony. Sometimes it's a biofilm of critters that just kind of keep working their way across it. But if you have a, t uh, a fragment in a different spot in the tank, sometimes it will not jump. You know, if there's mm. something really wrong with the tank, you, you know, all kinds of things can happen. But if it's just a little frag, one that's just isolated, just not even touching it, you know, can be a far enough away that it will survive just fine. And, and the colonies will re regrow. I mean, I've had colonies regrow many, many times over the years. And, you know, my 400 gallon system, um, you know, it's in several cases, it's grown really to the surface. Right. <laughs> and when it grows to the surface, it starts, you know, spreading yeah. out and forms a little, starts forming a little atoll. Yeah. Like, yeah. And and it's it's dead on the top. You know, it forms this red, funky kind of filament, this red turf algae on the top. Sometimes the hermit crabs like to crawl up there and just hang out in the, in the sun, I guess. <laughs> Get a little suntan. But, but, it, but, it, but it's long term. It's, you know, there's, there's nothing, there's not much alive on there. So eventually, every few years, if you have a successful, you know, SBS tank that's brightly lit, you really have to go in and just break everything up. I yeah. have a video. I don't, I'm not sure if I've ever posted it, but uh, two Christmases ago, I basically chopped the top one third of my tank off. And I went in there with screwdrivers and I had a, <clears throat> a brass hammer and I was just whacking at chunks because <laughs> it's all, it's, you know, other than the top surface, a reef is largely dead, right? It's just the top surface that, that's touching the sun that's really that's really growing. So, so eventually, you know, if you have a tank that's growing, you have to break that stuff back and break the top off, and then put a few new frags and reorient. You know, one of the things that you you were talking about earlier, as far as aquascaping a tank, you know, there's only so much you can do, and once the colonies start growing that structure is just going to take off on its own. And so right. you can create the most fantastic aquascape ever, but the corals are going to control that in the long run. Uh, and, and if you look at my system, it's a little wild. Like I, my corals are kind of growing into each other and on each other. And I just kind of let things go. Yeah, no, Greg, you bring up a bunch of good points. And um, I wanted to talk about those, you know, I wanted to show the video and, and talk about them, but you're kind of bringing them up yep. right now that, oh, yeah. um, you yeah. know, and, and uh, yeah, I think that's, that's vitally important in terms of uh, sometimes it's kind of tough to go in there with like whatever you're using, a, uh, a screwdriver or, or a fragging tool. And sometimes it's tough to like, wow, this is a very mature reef. It looks awesome. But, you know, you got to do what you got to do because uh, the, the tank will choke itself out. If yes, you don't, if you don't clear it out and um, give corals some uh, room to grow and and also increase the circulation in the tank, or, yeah. or else it'll it'll just um, you know suffocate everything. And, and exactly right, you hit on it. Circulation in the tank is is key. If you let things go too far and you just don't keep increasing that circulation, you get into trouble. Yeah, for sure. And you know, and in terms of aquascaping, I've um, every time I've started a reef tank, I've gotten better in terms of the amount of rock that I use. I mean, when I first got into the hobby, <clears throat> you know, I think the rule of thumb was two pounds of uh, live rock for every gallon of water. And, um, you know, I've gone down to like about a pound for, uh, you know, every gallon of water. And, and, 
you know, yeah, it's a, it's a more of a minimal, uh, minimalist uh, type of look. But if you do it right <clears throat> and the corals are happy and growing, then, yeah, that cool aquascape is going to just get covered up anyway. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it'll just it'll just it'll fill in however it fills in, you know. And I talked about breaking things back, you know. Um, I've had trouble getting uh, calcium reactor substrate uh, of lately, and and reborn just seems to be gone. And I'm not really happy with the other ones, so I've just taken to taken all the old skeletons I've got, and breaking them up, and, and a lot of them I've bleached out over the years, and just you know rinse them a few times. And now I'm using just old Montipora and Nakapora skeletons and just smashing them all up and tossing them into the top of my calcium reactor. And it's worked, worked just it's, fine. It's the, uh, it's the circle of life, right? It's a circle, yeah. It's absolutely, I'm recycled, you know, you know it's, it's recycle day. I just toss them all back in the, the calcium reactor. So, uh, Greg, we got a bunch of questions and some specific yeah. to the, um, the live rock discussion we were just talking about before. <clears throat> Jim Carson is uh, asking, could you take... Uh, dry rock, put it in a lobster cage, and then fish it out at the end of the lobster season. Would that work? He, he lives in a place where the water is uh, colder? No, it won't work. Well, it, it might work kind of, but the problem is you'll probably end up with a lot of organisms that are temperate. And unless you plan to keep a temperate tank, when you put them, when you, when you crank the temperature up to 75 and towards 80, they'll die and then they'll release nutrients that you don't want. So I, I, I'm not, I mean, unless it was really dense rock and you're just trying to get coralline algae on it. And I don't think that that really accomplishes very much. So no, you really want to have, if, you, if you're, if you're shooting for a tropical tank, you need tropical waters. Yeah, that makes sense. Matt Greer is asking, um, says I'm starting a 180 as we speak with about 60 pounds of old Fiji rock. I've added about a hundred pounds of cured dry rock. How long do you think I'll be waiting until I can add my acros? Uh, you know, it all depends. I, I think if you get some, I, I can't remember if there was some actual live rock or something from another tank. Yeah. yeah I guess the cured rock, live rock. Yeah. You know, a few months, I would say, is probably a good idea. The best thing is, so when I set my new system up and moved stuff over, I actually moved to kind of a few trial colonies first that were fairly hardy. And you'd be surprised sometimes, you know, even the super hardy stuff just was not happy. Like I yeah. put a green slimer in there and the green slimer just just died. So it's like, yeah. well, something's wrong if the green slimer doesn't live. So... You know, it just may take time, and I think it's best to, to test it with a few colonies first. Yeah, no, that's always, uh, you know, obviously if you have another tank and you've, you've got some um, very hardy corals that you can use as kind of uh, canaries, so to speak, and, yeah. and starter corals and see what they do, yeah, and that's absolutely. usually the way to go. Um, yeah. Greg, you're, let's, uh, let's, let's take a few minutes to look at the video you, you put together of your tanks and, sure. and the equipment. You did a little narration, you know, um, over it, so it's about... Um, I think it's a little over six minutes long. Okay. So we'll take a look at that, and then um, we'll come back and we'll talk about it. So let's, okay. uh, let's roll the tape. Okay. Okay, we'll start with the Calerpa farm. So this is an old 65-gallon all-glass tank uh, that I drilled and turned into a Calerpa farm. I'm using these really low-cost LED lights, uh, and they do an amazing job. I mean, these things were incredibly cheap. Uh, but 
just a good tank for, for pulling nutrients out quickly. This is the sump system. It's a big stock tank. And there's a homemade calcium reactor that I've been using on the tank for about 11 years now. Fan above it to increase evaporation if I need to. I just uh, use air conditioning on the room to pull uh, additional uh, moisture out of the room occasionally. And so this runs upstairs. There's two main pumps that circulate water uh, back up to the upstairs. I'm using an incredibly inexpensive uh, temperature controller. Uh, it seems to work quite well, although I think I had to weatherproof the, uh, the probe. And then I add uh, DI water back with a peristaltic pump in the upper left-hand corner there. And there's some air pumps that add additional air to the, uh, to the skimmer through some uh, wooden air stones. This is a small fragment garage tank that sits next to the, to the big tank. Uh, water just flows back into the stock tank via gravity. Uh, this is also using some very inexpensive, but more, but a, I guess more of a true reef uh, uh, lighting system, Ocean Revive. Uh, incredibly powerful. I, I really was amazed. Some things don't do that well under it, though. Some things don't crust for some reason. I don't completely understand that. This just gives you an idea. Xenia is growing wild, wild on the glass, but I cut that back and propagated it. Oh, and then just a touch again on the uh, on the calcium reactor here. So, again, it's homemade, just an acrylic cylinder <coughs> with a pump, with an Eheim pump that recirculates water through it. Um, this thing I fill about every two months, and then it dissolves about half of it in about two months. I used to use uh, reborn substrate, but they haven't been able to supply it for many, many months now. So I've just gone to using old skeletons from the tank that have been bleached and then rinsed carefully. This is just a shot of the tank room in the morning before the artificial lights come on. Um, this system is set up such that it gets a fair amount of light from the right-hand side in the morning and gets a fair amount of light uh, coming in from the windows uh, in the afternoon on the left-hand side. Also, there's a, the lighting system is on a rail that goes back and forth. Uh, it comes on every few hours and moves the system a few inches one way or another just to minimize the point source of light uh, and makes the corals potentially grow a little less uh, towards the light. That's a teal carpet anemone that uh, Randy Holmes Farley uh, sold me many years ago. purple tip acropora towards the right hand side is Larry Jackson's. The other one is uh, one I picked up not too long ago. Much brighter purple moves further down the branch. 
the blue long branch stag in the back was from John Coppolino many years ago. The one right in the center is uh, the Aqua Delight that I've had for many, many years. Lost the colony and then recently got it back uh, with a frag uh, a couple years ago. I've had problems with Briopsis in this tank for a long time, but of late I have some very large urchins that seem to be doing a pretty good job with the both the Briopsis and uh, Bologna. This is a shot from the, uh, the very left-hand side of the tank. This is a shot from inside the canopy. So there's uh, a pair of 400 watt metal halides um, and then three 250 watt phoenix double end uh, uh, 14k bulbs uh, on either side there and a buddy of mine made this uh this uh this kind of canopy for the system it just has these little guillotine type things that pull out um, and so it allows me to get down into the tank very effectively. This is a 37 uh, gallon tank that I've had for many years. At one point in time I had seahorses in it. Um, I was breeding seahorses for a while and I had pipefish. Uh, and then I had uh, an octopus for a while and then I had some cuttlefish in the system. But now it's more just a low flow kind of LPS uh, system and this one actually does have uh, an LED system on it. And we are back. Wow, Greg, that was uh, that's one heck of a system. So, uh, what's the coolest thing you ever saw in your uh, in your system? Yeah, so um, it, this was back when I had the I think I, I converted the the uh, fish only system into a reef system. And it must have come in on some live rock some point in time. And again, I never really bought that much live rock. But one day at night, I was working in the system, and I was I was you know had my hands down in there, and the, and it was the lights were off in the room, and the tank lights were off, and I brushed up against something, and it lit up blue. <laughs> blue. It lit up blue, and I was like, "What, what the, the heck, heck is that? <laughs> is that? I mean." It, it, created its own light and wow. and then i you know over time i figured out what it was it was some type of uh i think it was a serpent star some type of serpent star so bioluminescence or something yeah yeah bioluminescence and i, wow. I specifically remember when my kids were young i would have you know babysitters would come over you know and at the end of the night i'd say hey come here let's see this <laughs> and i would take an acrylic you know rod and poke it and what was cool is you touched it and the, the senses, you know, the kind of the nerve endings would propagate along. So this electric blue light would propagate along its arms and then out the other arms. It was the coolest damn thing I'd ever wow. seen. Wow, so you could actually uh, spur it on to make that, uh, to, to, exactly. wow, that is really cool. Just tap cool. it and it would, it would light up. Wow. So um, we got a lot to talk about in terms of that system there, Greg. And um, it's a, it's a very, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a very basic system. It's, it's not a, yep. um, 
you know, it's not a complicated system. It's just, you know, I'm going to say it's an old school type of uh, system where you've got, um, you know, some nutrient exports with that calorpora form going on there. And, um, you know, you got a calcium reactor. I didn't see a protein skimmer. Are you using, there is, one. There, there is there a protein one. skimmer in there? Okay. And, um, yeah, you've, you've got, uh, you got, you got that basic sump and, and I mean, it's, it's, uh, it just really proves that you can have success in this hobby without investing a lot of money and, and having the, the latest and the greatest in terms of the, you know, fancy equipment. Yeah. Keep it simple, stupid. It really is really important. The basics, you know, you just got to realize any food you put in has to come out somewhere, right? This is a closed system. Either you're going to do it with water changes, which is an extremely slow way of doing it, a very expensive way, or you're going to grow things, which is one of the best ways, right? Get Xenia growing, get some soft corals growing, or even hard corals if they grow fast. All those things are pulling nutrients out of the water. Right. You know, and then Calerpa as well can help you. And then, a, you know, a decent protein skimmer because you really want good air exchange so that you don't end up with you know, some kind of crazy pH because of too much uh, carbon dioxide coming in maybe from your calcium reactor or just too much carbon dioxide in the room, for instance, that can be a problem, you know. So, uh, but I, I, I do feel like a, a, a skimmer is pretty important just to kind of keep the, uh, the balance of, uh, of the gases in the system. Do you um, check your parameters often? And, and if you do, what, uh, what are your nitrates and phosphate? No, no testing? Well, You're just looking at the tank you know, and... Well, yeah, that's really important to look at the tank for sure. For instance, the other night it, it got really warm here in Boston. I was like, why do things look weird? And, and then, I, you know, I'd been out the whole day and I got home. This I was, I was hang gliding again. I got home. And I was like, why do things look bad? And I, I went downstairs. Sure enough, it was 84, mm. which, you know, sometimes in the summer, I'll let it slowly drift up to 83, 84. And that's OK. But suddenly you get up to 84. Yeah. You, yeah. You know, you don't want that. Uh, so with respect to testing, I do test one thing extremely often, and that's just the alkalinity. Yeah. Okay. So you can make your own alkalinity test kit super easy if you just use a pH indicator and a little bit of acid. And, and so I made liters of the stuff, and so I can test it very, very frequently, and I do. Um, and that, that generally, if you test for alkalinity and you're using a calcium reactor, then the calcium is usually exactly in the right spot. So, you know, I might test for calcium once every three months or so and for magnesium once every six months or so uh, anymore. But really just making sure that the alkalinity is in the right spot all the time is super important. That That's what I found. Yeah, no, for sure. Do you um, do you keep track of your pH? We, we had um, – I had um, Adam from Battle Corals on um, last week's show, and, and he was talking about how he thought that uh, the higher pH that he was uh, able to achieve recently has really helped his uh, corals. That's not something you monitor? Um, and and could, no. you address, uh, and could, could you address that with your, with your background in terms of the biochemistry of all that stuff in terms of do you think sure, higher pH sure. would? Yeah, I mean, you know, the natural reef has a, uh, a, a, a somewhat higher pH than my system for sure runs. So you can balance that by keeping alkalinity high, right? And so I do. My alkalinity is probably slightly higher than natural seawater, but that allows my pH to be a little bit lower because I'm using a calcium right. reactor. And that's okay. And, and, you know, you know, 
and, and the, the the tragic thing is that doesn't work in the in the natural environment, right? So unfortunately, and here's my here's my science coming into this. <laughs> and everybody, you know, this is all facts, and there's no there's no BS on this. You can go, and you can look at the testing of the carbon dioxide level uh, off the cor- co- coast of uh, Hawaii. They do it every year, and it oscillates. But it is going up, and it's now crossed 400 parts per million, and it, it you can see the clear trend line. And what that means is the pH in the ocean has already dropped 0.1 pH units. Mm. Okay, that's a lot. You think the entire oceans drop 0.1 pH, and corals don't like that, and they're unhappy about that. And you could say, well, wait, the pH in my tank is 8.0. Why are my your corals are not happy. Your corals are fine because you can artificially elevate the the alkalinity. And then people say, well, why can't we do that in the ocean? Well, yeah, you could. You could go mine the white cliffs of Dover and 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 build this ginormous fleet of 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 you know boats that like sprinkle it out on the surface <laughs> of the water all over the you know. It's just completely impractical. Controlling the level of carbon dioxide is what you need to do. And I hope that. Not to be political, but yeah. I hope that the current believed to be president-elect will will get on the bandwagon and really and really turn us around because this this can't go on. All the scientifics are you know everyone's uh, understands that. I uh, I agree with you, and yes, we don't want to make this a political uh, show, but uh, yeah, I'm, yeah. I am encouraged by the uh, by the change in direction in terms of the climate change uh, you know um, perspective yep. from the incoming uh, president-elect. So we got a couple more uh, questions here, Greg. Um, Robert Poorman asks, uh, love, love the stream. Thanks, Robert. Any thoughts on using a sump that has a um, uh, deep sand bed with a plenum? I'm back after 15 years with a one-year-old tank. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know that anyone ever really proved the value of a plenum. I, I just don't think it's, it's necessary. I wouldn't, I wouldn't bother with it. You know, I like the look of sand at the bottom of my tank. A lot of people have gone with the bare look now. I don't think it really matters. Um, if you put sand in there, you know, nutrients can accumulate, but I don't think it's the end of the world. I think eventually it reaches some equilibrium as well. And sand will dissolve to some extent and stabilize the alkalinity a little bit. But in a tank that's really using a lot of calcium, you have to have a calcium reactor. Uh, so I, I, I don't... I don't see any value in, in going back to the old days of plenum. I'm not sure it was ever really proven all that much. So, Greg, you, you mentioned um, sand beds and bare bottoms. What um, <clears throat> I couldn't even tell with your tank and your display. I'm assuming you've got a sand bed there, but uh, it was all covered up with corals. But uh, Yeah, there's a, there's a sand bed there. But, again, things keep growing out, and, and eventually, you know, I mean, you know, the – Montipora will grow just on the surface of the sand and they'll move out and they get to the glass and they start growing up the glass. Incidentally, don't let them do that. Don't let them do that very much because my 65 gallon tank uh, that, I, you know, I let stuff grow way too far, at least hard coral. And when I broke it back, the, the, the glass was clearly uh, had a film on it. And you could never remove that yeah. film. I mean, maybe you could grind it off, but in a practical manner, you could never remove it. Uh, I've let, uh, you know, like green tree, uh, uh, green star polyps grow all over the glass. And that's really beautiful. 
I don't think that causes a problem. But a hard coral like Montecora, it'll grow on, it'll just completely cover the glass, and it's, it's not a good idea. Are you actively trying to remove detritus from your systems at all, or are you just kind of let, letting nature take its course? And No, I haven't, I don't, not in the main system. I mean, I, you know, in the sump, uh, I'll, I'll vacuum debris off the sump occasionally, just because I don't want it to get stirred up if I pour water in there or something like that. And in my 65-gallon system that's, a, that's attached to it where I grow the calerpa, you know, a lot of stuff settles out there and you get kind of this mulm layer. And so I'll, I'll, I'll vacuum that up occasionally. But I'm never, you know, super rigid. And when I do that, I just kind of look at stuff and I just siphon some of it out once in a while. Have you ever experienced uh, old tank syndrome? Uh, you know, after a number of years, all of a sudden things kind of go downhill? Or what do, you, what do you think about old tank syndrome? Do you think that's a real thing? Uh, to an extent, I, I think it's just a question of balancing the nutrients. I think that the nutrients get too high. And, and I've had, you know, times when my tank wasn't doing very well. Um, and I think it's just a question of uh, uh, sometimes corals fight. And then sometimes even some corals won't just do well in a system. And and I've had times when, you know, I knew one one colony died back. And I got a fragment from someone that I knew was the same coral, put it in there like, you know, a few months later and it wouldn't grow and it died, waited another year, put it in and it wouldn't grow. And two more years later, put it in and grows up again. (laughs) No problem. You you know, there's a lot of mystery, you know, there's a lot of variables, you know? Yeah. You can't understand it all, but you know, live and let live and just you know i don't get too worked up over it but i super i think that old tank syndrome is largely just due to nutrient levels i think you're just you know not enough flow like you said before things get too big not enough flow um and maybe not taking care of things as as well as you 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 could you know cleaning the skimmer more frequently vacuuming this and that and uh and just making sure that you have good nutrient control and checking things like calcium and alkalinity and 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 salinity and magnesium that you might not have or maybe some of your standards or something drifted and you weren't you know being very careful maybe some of the instruments you were using were drifted what what are your thoughts in terms of salinity for a reef tank do you uh do you think that um natural seawater is is a good target for salinity do you think it's better to have a higher salinity or a lower salinity uh, definitely not higher. I, I think you can go, you can go a little bit lower and save a little bit of money on salt water. Uh, I don't think it hurts anything. Um, you know, natural reefs, you know, you have the, the Red Sea is, is much higher level of salinity. Well, not much, but somewhat higher level of salinity at other places in the world. And corals survive even, even occasionally when, you know, fresh water is coming into some area or another, you know, not full fresh water, but just, you know, somewhat lower. Uh, so, so corals can survive that, but I would not go, you know, much below 1.021, I think. I, I can't remember. Natural seawater is like 2.5, I think. Two, I'm sorry, 1.025, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we got a question from Great Bearded Reef, and this is actually a question for the both of us. Um, top three for keeping and growing successful colonies of SPS. And, and he's saying with a question mark, stable DKH flow and light? What do you think, top three? What was, what was the first part of the question? Uh, basically, what are the top three things for keeping and growing successful colonies of SPS? So if you had to give somebody advice, top yeah, three. Absolutely. 
Uh, light, water, motion, and alkalinity. Yeah, I would say light is very important, stability, and uh, yeah, keep a real keen eye on, on alkalinity and, and um, yeah, stability, yeah. stability, stability. Yeah, and I'm not a big, uh, I'm not a big proponent of, of, well, I mean, you can, you can feed your tank all kinds of stuff, and it may be that some SPS may eat some things, you know, people have shown, oh, it's, the polyp is eating something. I don't really worry about that. I don't really try to feed. I let I feed my fish, and they, you know, there's enough nutrients in the system that that generally is enough. Mostly, I feed the corals light. Right. So, do you do you use like any amino acids or anything uh, coral foods, or you're just basically using the fish food and letting the fish poop uh, do its thing? Exactly. Exactly. And it doesn't take much either. Uh, so I don't use amino acids. I mean, I'm not I'm not opposed to the idea that you might you might achieve something by that, but amino acids, there's no significant natural level of amino acids in in salt water, uh, just because they're so useful. Most life would have already pulled them out of the salt water, so I don't think corals really need them. Now, the one thing that that's kind of touches on that same thing is uh, is trace elements, and so, you know, I think most trace elements are coming in with the calcium reactor skeletons you're breaking down. But I have found that in a system where things are growing quickly, uh, I have had a loss of, of color of colonies, particularly, your, you know, colorful Montipora and things like that are growing quickly. And so years ago, I did start using, I, I kind of created my own trace element stuff in the lab, just pulled off a bunch of chemicals off the shelf. And I basically tried to create it based upon what was written originally on the old CombiSan uh, uh, trace elements. And unfortunately, CombiSan didn't really have that stuff in it. It was, it was kind of just water. But it, it had a list that said it has this much, you know, copper and this much barium and this much this and that. And so I mixed this stuff up. And that's kind of when I realized that CombiSan couldn't really have all that stuff in it because you, because at least for me, I couldn't physically create one liquid that had all those things in it. I had to separate some of the components, otherwise they'd precipitate. <laughs> and so I thought to myself, how can this have all these elements in it? There's something wrong here. And so, but anyhow, I just made it myself and. And I, I don't, I'm not really careful about the way I, you know, I add a few capfuls of each every so often. Again, you know, and this is true for kind of the work that I do for cells and culture. I feel like there's a pretty wide range of certain things that are that are just fine, you know, for trace elements. And as long as you're in that range, you know, corals can pull out what they need. So, you know, if you get too low, maybe there's a problem, but you add a little bit of something and, and it gets you back into that range. I think it's a pretty broad range for most things, most trace elements, not for calcium alkalinity and magnesium. Those really have to be, you know, pretty close to the right range. And incidentally, one of the things that people talk about alkalinity, and, and so for me, it's really important to be above that, you know, that lower limit. And what I... What I've never understand is, is people that say they have these horrible disasters when they have a spike in alkalinity. I've had my alkalinity go crazy high, 
and almost never had a problem. I mean, it happens almost every time my ca- my uh, my carbon dioxide bottle starts running low because it will uh, it will the regulator is not very good, and so it'll add a whole bunch of carbon dioxide and add a whole bunch of alkalinity in a short period of time. And I've never seen a, a real big disaster from that. So I'm I'm always surprised when people say, "Oh, I had an alkalinity spike and it crashed my tank." I'm I'm not sure I buy that. Usually, if in most cases. I've found when I when I read online, someone says I had a tank crash, and they said, and they have some reason for it. You're like, uh, I'm not sure about that. And you ask them a series of questions, and eventually you get to the actual reason why their tank crashed, and it might be something, you know, quite simple like a heater broke. Right, 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 and, right. And all kinds of crap went in from the heater. Yeah, that's another thing I feel strongly about. You know, be very careful about. Things like glass heaters. Yeah, uh, titanium is the way to, to go. Cord. Yeah, try to keep the cord, you know, the cord out, and and don't break it, or, or use a metal one and have it on a controller. Uh, yeah, high heat is a really bad thing for a tank, but also just if a, if a heater breaks, a glass thing breaks, um, you know, it, it, the the chemicals that can be released from that, particularly if it's got some electricity behind it, really can be bad news for a system. And you can get quite a jolt too there if you stick your hand in that uh, tank, right? Yeah, yeah. You can, it's not not, not a healthy place. A, a multiple front is not a good thing. Uh, Greg, you uh, you were talking about trace elements, and a lot of people, you know, out there do use uh, GFO to help control uh, nutrients. I don't know if that's anything you've ever done in in the past. Pro- I'm going to assume that they probably you have not used a lot of GFO, but well, I've I've experimented around. I mean. I don't know how much it's actually doing. I we bought a bunch, uh, kind of a bulk supply of it once, and I sprinkle it in. I, I mix I mix it with uh, carbon, and I just put it in kind of a, a cylindrical thing and let water trickle over that whole mess. Uh, but you got to be careful with that GFO. You know, it, it, if you if you just pack it all in something and it's not circulating, it'll just become frozen because the alkalinity kind of seals it up. Uh, but if I sprinkle it in with carbon as I put car- activated carbon in, that seems to work. But I, I don't know. I'm not really sure it's really doing all that much for me. I, I I don't. I mean, again, I have a whole bunch of it, so I just keep putting it in. And when it's gone, I don't. I'm not sure I'll bother to buy anymore. <laughs> Do you think um, it? Uh, I mean, one of the negative. Um, you know, my perspective is that one of the negatives about using GFO is that it can pull out valuable trace elements. Is is that is that a true assumption? I don't know. I, I haven't really looked into that. It, it, that may be, maybe that's one of the reasons it, it made a difference. And I, I can't remember when I started using that and whether that was part of the problem. I, you know, so much time goes by, you know, I've kept pretty good notes. Years ago, I used to keep really good notes. More recently, I haven't kept those good notes, but I, I, I can't say that I have lined those things up in any manner. So uh, we, we've got a lot more questions, and I'm going <clears> to <throat> I'm gonna back up to a question regarding uh, bryopsis. You and I were talking about bryopsis during the, the, uh, the video clip. You mentioned it uh, briefly in terms of how you use the, uh, the, the urchins to help beat that back. But um, Jay Lieberman is asking, did you ever try, and this is an interesting question because you have this uh, chemistry background, fluconazole for bryopsis. Have you ever tried any uh, chemicals to try to beat back problematic algae like bryopsis? Um, I'm trying to think for any chemicals, certainly not for bryopsis. I never try. I, I'm, I'm very, I mean, you know, I'm a biochem, I mean, biochemical engineer. You know, I, I know a lot about chemistry and, and 
I'm just afraid to use complicated chemicals in a system like this where you know it's killing something because it's probably killing other things too. Right, that you don't know. So I'm pretty reluctant, but but at the same time, I'm I, you know I, I if it's if it works <laughs> and people are happy with it and it and it ha they feel like it hasn't killed a lot of other things, you know maybe that's okay. But I'm I'm really reluctant to to dump really you know widespread you know if, you, if you're trying to kill something locally and you think you can keep everything local or just pull the rock out you know but for me the, the natural thing usually works the best you know get a big urchin and let it go in there and grind away and it's beautiful too these urchins you know their spines are moving around you brush against them and they they do all kinds of crazy stuff people come over and they're like wow that's that's just so cool are they hardy you know, some of them are really beautiful are, really beautiful. are they are they pretty hardy oh absolutely yeah. i've had them i've had them live for i don't know five maybe even ten years with some of these urchins more so than the, the you know the the ones that people specifically say for uh for hair algae i haven't had as much luck with those like the tuxedo urchins and some of those those don't seem to do very well, and they don't seem to accomplish very much, but it's more the long-spined uh, urchins. A lot of times people end up with a whole bunch of little urchins uh, you know, on their live rock, and they don't want it grinding all the, the coralline away. And so sometimes you can find somebody that just wants to get rid of their urchins, and you say, oh, I'll take all your urchins. Thanks. <laughs> right. Yeah, why, why not, right? I mean, um, yeah. um, another question regarding uh, chemistry. Activated carbon, do you use that? Is that a good thing for a tank or is that a bad thing? I, I do, and I, I think it has significant value just because, I mean, you could you could go blue doing water changes to try to deal with all the substances that are being put out. So my tank is a, is a mixed reef tank, right? So you saw some soft corals in there, gargonians. There's a few mushrooms. There's all kinds of random stuff in there. Um, and it all gets along, but it's all trying to poison each other as well, right? So if the water motion keeps things at least so that all those poisons are, are somewhat dilute and they're not too much localized, that helps. But then the stuff is still floating around and it can make other things sick. So this might be part of the, the old tank syndrome type thing as well. So, you know, activated carbon for sure pulls out organic compounds from the water and and there's no question your corals are putting out a lot of chemicals all the time stuff that they just don't want or stuff that they're trying to use to poison their neighborhood so for sure activated carbon can can pull that out and and it's it's easy to use and you can't go too wrong with it as long as you're using a decent quality stuff that's designed for aquariums and doesn't have a a ton of phosphate that's going to leach out of it. Yeah, I mean, I've always used activated carbon in my tanks, but uh, I do know successful reefers that have not used it. So, um, you know, that's that's interesting. But that uh, yeah, I again, I, I think it's one of these things where, you know, for any of these things, if you have a really low density tank, like you have just a small number of fish and you have just a few isolated corals, yeah. You, you probably don't need it and if you do a lot of water changes but if if that's not practical for you, you have a tank and there's corals just everywhere and some of them probably don't get along you know they're probably fighting each other with chemicals and it's better to remove that and tanks will get yellow as well people use you can you can test that too you can you can like put a white uh, a white uh 
plastic piece in the tank and just see as you move move it away how yellow it gets. And you'd be surprised in some cases how yellow your water may be. And it'll take out those something substances, the, the uh, captivated carbon well. Right. Um, question from Dimitri, and this is a good question. Um, how do you think the hobby has changed in the past 10 to 20 years, and where do you think it's going to be in another 10 to 20 years? Yeah, really good question. So what has happened more recently, I think, is people are super into micro tanks, right? Smaller and smaller systems. And now with LED lights, everyone's super excited about LED lights. And, and I've had, you know, my main system is still uh, metal halide, but I'm using LEDs in other systems, in other places and systems and and they work just fine i'm not sure that in the long run that you can get kind of the penetration that you need to down deep into the water um but but you know i really see this move towards small tanks and then people just using these led lights and turning them to a place that's just not natural what i mean by that is is i dive i've, I've been diving you know all over the pacific and you know what happens when you dive is the, the 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 red light gets filtered out pretty quick and everything kind of becomes blue and then kind of grayish but it doesn't become like disneyland it doesn't become like the <laughs> electric light parade yeah know? corals just don't light up like these people have their systems like it's like a Reminds me of the 1970s with the black light posters. The kids would put the black light on. Ooh, yeah. You know, that's just that's just that's not what a reef looks like. Yeah. They just don't look that way. And so, I mean, you can you can make things just look like the electric light parade. And that's my goal is to have a natural system that looks like what I see when I dive. You know, I'm, although I don't want all brown, but you know, when you dive, you see lots of beautiful colors. Right. Um, you know, and you won't have as many brown corals. There's nothing wrong with a few brown corals, right? I mean, I have I've had a colony of Blue Ridge coral, which is not blue; it's brown, right? Theoretically, it's soft coral, but it makes it. But but the skeleton is beautiful blue. And actually, when I broke up one part of my tank recently, I took all the old you know stuff that was grown down before, and I broke it up. I'm gonna I'm gonna eventually turn it into uh, a polished jewelry because why not? <laughs> That's awesome. You can soak it with, you can soak it in, uh, I think, a little uh, silicate material, and, and I'm going to shape it into, I've already done some of it, and put it in jewelry. I do silver jewelry work. Man, Greg, you don't waste anything in that tank there, huh? Yeah, recycle it all. Why not? <laughs> you know, I've had colonies that have died that were so beautiful, I figured, well, I can bring them in somewhere and, you know, you know, sell them just to back to a shop to put in an old-style 1970s fish-only system, right? Yeah, why not? We, um, so we got a question from Great Bearded Reef. This is an interesting question given your, uh, what we were just talking about in terms of testing. What do you think about I ICP testing? Do you think that's a good idea for uh, people to do? Do you believe in it? Do you think it's uh, chasing too many numbers? I, I, think it's, I think it's probably reasonably accurate for certain uh, compounds. I mean, we use it in my, my work occasionally when we're trying to analyze for trace elements, uh, particularly coming off stainless steel bioreactors and things like that. Um, so, it, you know, there can be a use for it. Um, but I don't, I don't know that, I don't think, you know, chasing numbers is a very good point. I, I don't think you need to analyze your tank up and down. I think you need to do water changes with a decent, with a decent salt. 
what <laughs> what, would, things, what would you um most things will take care of themselves what would, what's your definition of a decent water change what percent and how often oh well you know that all depends upon how how uh concentrated the system is right how many corals and fish you've got in there so i mean in my main system i probably change five percent of the water once a month that's probably about about what i do i don't it's pretty rare that i actually do a water change for water change sake i just you know pull off a bunch of water if i'm shipping corals or if i'm uh, propagating stuff and I work with that and then just throw that out afterwards because it's got slime and all kinds of stuff yeah. that's going off all the corals at that time. Um, so I don't think you need to do a lot. Um, but I, I don't know that unless you're trying to uh, troubleshoot some particular problem with trace elements, I don't know that I would spend a lot of money on ICP analysis. That just seems like a lot of overkill to me. Yep. So we have. I've never, I've never sent a sample. You never sent a sample out, yeah. Other than, other than when I years ago I wrote a article on calcium reactor substrates and I dissolved some, some calcium reactor substrates and then diluted it and sent him some samples to find out what was actually in it, and it was actually quite, quite accurate and quite, uh, quite nice to get that information. So that might be of interest if you're trying to look for a calcium reactor substrate that you knew if you really knew what you wanted in it, right? Let's. Uh, you just you just mentioned something that I um, I wanted to talk about, and and you were like one of the uh, um, kind of like in the beginning in terms of um, putting together a calcium reactor, right? weren't weren't you um, involved with really one of the first calcium reactors that were uh, put together for the hobby in, in terms of uh, designing and and um, no. Uh, I thought there no, was. I, I thought was, you had I a was, connection. No, I I definitely was not. No, no, I was nowhere near the first, but. Uh, you know, some people showed me, you know, what a, what a cal, you know, you can see what a calcium reactor is. It's actually pretty darn simple. And so all you need is a cylinder and it's great to have it clear so you can see how much is dissolved, but that even that's not absolutely necessary, but it's nice to see where the water level is and where the, the rock is. Um, but no, it's a very simple system. And the calcium reactor that, that I have is, is a homemade, I mean, if I, I've got the acrylic tube somewhere. And I kind of glued it to the base of something. And someone was using some uh, white marine text. I think it was what it was called. Somebody showed me that you could use that. And it doesn't make a really good seal. But if it's in your sump, it drips a little bit. No big deal. Uh, but you can make super simple calcium reactors. Um, and all you really need is a, is a decent pump to recirculate it. The Eheim pumps work extremely well. They'll work for decades, really. Yeah. Particularly in the calcium reactor because the the pH is low, so no precipitation is occurring on the uh, impeller in that case. It's just recirculating. pH is low because of the fact that you're dissolving stuff. And so the, the pump will, will run for almost forever, it seems like. Those little super efficient, uh, low-energy Eheim pumps, just enough to recirculate the water around and then bubble cal uh, carbon dioxide in. It's, it's, calcium reactors are pretty simple. Yeah, I... Um... I've used calcium reactors for for many many years. Right now, I'm using two part, but um, you know ESV two part. But I'm going to be using um, calcium reactor again, and and um, yeah, they're they're really very very efficient. What do you what do you think about having a second chamber in a calcium reactor to help um, you know with the pH? Do you think that's necessary? 
in terms of well, um, I don't, I don't have, I don't have one, so I don't think it's necessary. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I worried about that for a while, uh, but again, I think you can ca- compensate. So, so you can get into trouble though. I think sometimes people would try to do that, and stuff would end up precipitating out, and so you wouldn't necessarily have as quite as much as you as you hoped with respect to alkalinity. I think it's easier just to keep your alkaline in the system just a slightly elevated all the time to compensate for the fact that the pH is a little bit lower, lower due to your calcium reactor. So my cal- again, my calcium reactor, here's one, one important thing for a calcium reactor that I found was really, you know, key to make it easier to operate. And that is tee off a line from a, a recirculation pump that, that has a fair amount of pressure behind it. Uh, that helps. So you're feeding into the calcium reactor under a little bit of pressure. Uh, that that makes your life uh, a lot easier with respect to uh, controlling the calcium reactor. What do you think about using a cockwasser in, in conjunction with a calcium reactor? Yeah, a- absolutely. Nothing wrong with it, and it, it will help keep the pH a little bit higher. Um, you know, just be careful, though, you know, you know, Bad things can happen. You know, I said that it's not that big of a deal if the alkalinity gets high. And that's true, except for the fact that if the alkalinity gets high, and then you compensate quickly for it. So, for instance, if I had a calcium reactor, the CO2 is going too much. It's putting too much alkalinity in. And and the alkalinity goes really high. And then I realize it, and I go, oh, oh, man, it's so high. Let me just turn all of the CO2 off right now. Okay, and what that does is you've got the alkalinity really high and now you turn off the CO2 and now the pH goes high. Mm. And so high alkalinity, high pH, snowstorm is coming. Yeah. And, Interesting. and snowstorm is not a huge deal for your tank, which can freak you out. You can come, I've, had, I've gone into a system, looked at the system and I'm like, it's just milky white and you're like, oh my God, everything's dead. It's not. It's not actually. Things can survive that pretty well. Uh, you know, you blow it off a little bit and you clean the glass and you go, oh, it's not actually quite as milky white as I thought. So things can survive that uh, type of a thing. But the whole point is what you don't want is a sudden change. You know, so I think that if something goes wrong and the alkalinity gets really high, if you just immediately turn off the CO2, the pH is going to go high. If you taper off slowly, then the pH will drop slowly, and then the, it's more likely that the system will kind of rebalance it as that alkalinity gets pulled out again by the system. Uh, and the biggest problem with that is if you have that high alkalinity, high pH, you can also have precipitation that starts to occur on, on pumps. Particularly any place that's warm, that's where you get the calcium carbonate precipitation. And it's just really annoying if you have pumps that shut down. Uh, and incidentally, I have, I have a very dim view of of most submersible pumps. Uh, years ago, it was the Rio pumps that would melt down mm. and freeze up and, and kill tanks left and right. But the, the point in general is that I, I, I particularly favor external pumps that are, you know, uh, standard centrifugal pumps that are designed for the aquarium hobby. You know, if you take care of those and once a year, ideally once a year, but maybe once every two or three years, you take them offline and you pull the thing out and then you clean them either with vinegar or, or hydrochloric acid or, you know, diluted hydrochloric acid. That's, that's really important. 
Um, but the point is that, that that high alkalinity and the high pH at the same time can cause precipitation on things, which is, which is what really causes the problem. Yeah, it's interesting. It seems like there's been a, a big trend away from um, external pumps to submersible pumps in this hobby. I mean, when I started, it was pretty much I was always using an external pump to my sump. But, um, you know, now it's just I, I have a hard time uh, finding a system that's that's using an external pump. Well, you know, I think power heads that are designed well, um, you know, can be pretty good as long as you're, you're careful with them and, and make sure that they, they don't seize up. Um, and I'm all for creating motion right in the system, but at the same time, um, I really like the reliability. If you're going to use a return pump, I really like the reliability of, uh, of an external centrifugal uh, uh, return pump that's plumbed, you know, so that you can get to it right. and, and take it out. Uh, those are just really powerful and really efficient. So we have another uh, chemistry uh, question for you, Greg, and then we're gonna uh, we're gonna try to wrap this up because I don't want to keep you on all night long, even though we got a yeah, ton, yeah, of, okay. ton of okay, questions no going on here. So uh, Saint Nova is asking, um, what does Greg think about lanthanum chloride safety over time in a reef tank? I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly, but uh, yeah, lanthanum chloride. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, I got a story on that. <laughs> um, so you know, I would have to say I wouldn't do it anymore. So I did it. And I played around with it, and uh, I think it's a mistake to use directly into your system. So, I mean, one thing that you could do, I suppose, is treat the water separately. But I don't even think I would do that anymore. So w what it comes down to is I didn't see any significant negative effects for the vast majority of things in the tank. But I can never, ever keep a tridac clam again. Hmm. Okay. At one point in time, I had a deracer that grew from, you know, three inches to like 10 inches. Yeah. And to have a clam like that is a beautiful thing. You know, it's really, really beautiful. And you have to do nothing for it. All they, you know, all they really need is light. Yep. At least if they reasonably sized. But for some reason, and I assume this is the case, um, I used lanthanum and then the tridac clams that I had died. And I had, you know, I'd read that might be a risk. Um, and I just don't think it's necessary. You can control nutrients in other ways. Um, but I just can't, you know, and I thought maybe enough time would go by and I've tried clams, you know, again, I stopped using lanthanum like years ago, but there must be enough residue in the system somewhere that leaches out. I'm thinking to kill the clams. Cause I don't think there's anything wrong with my system other than that. I mean, I used to grow clams just fine. So that's got to be my assumption. Lanthanum and clams, not good. <laughs> yeah. All right. The last question is going to come from Robert Poorman. Is sodium carbonate better than bicarbonate for pH and how much if used simultaneously? <laughs> it's a good question. So, um, so sodium carbonate and sodium bicarbonate are in a sense the same thing. Okay. But what I mean by that is Let's just say you took a, uh, a glass of water and you put a little sodium bicarbonate in and you put a little carb carbonate in and you mix them up. Okay, short term, the one with the sodium bicarbonate will be uh, a much lower pH and the sodium carbonate will be much higher pH. But if you let those just sit there, in time, carbon dioxide from the air 
will go into the into the carbonate and carbon dioxide will flash off from the bicarbonate and eventually you end up with the same thing they're the chemically the same thing so it's just a question in the short run what you do and so you know if you want to short-term elevate uh pH, you can add carbonate instead of bicarbonate, but it doesn't really matter. Bicarbonate's a lot easier to come by. You just go buy an Arm and Hammer or whatever, you know, baking soda. Don't buy anything that has any kind of fragrance in it. Good God! But you know, if it's if it's cooking, if it's cooking, if it's designed for cooking, it should be perfectly fine. Um, and I think it's easier to add. It's easier to well, it doesn't dissolve at quite as high concentration as uh, the sodium carbonate, but I think it's, it's fine to just use sodium bicarbonate. So they end up the same in the same place. It's just that the sodium bicarbonate flashes off additional carbon dioxide in time. All right, Greg, man, listen, I'm not going to keep you any longer. Do you have any uh, final thoughts for the folks out there watching tonight? Uh, you know, keep it simple. You don't need, I mean, my tank has been successful for many years and it, you know, I've learned a lot of homemade ways to do stuff, and it doesn't really cost that much if you're careful about the things that you do. And you don't need the latest gizmo. Don't chase all the numbers other than the important ones. Alkalinity, temperature, pH. Well, not pH. Well, it's important, but it, it takes care of itself largely. Um, alkalinity, uh, temperature. Salinity has to be checked as well, but generally that's easy. You know, evaporate water, add fresh water back, right? Do you uh, use a uh, controller? Uh, for salinity? No, no. No, I use, a, I use a level controller that just, you know, the level in the sump drops. Oh, incidentally, so that's one thing I actually highly recommend as well. Never use a uh, never use a float switch. Those yeah. are a disaster. Yeah, I agree. Something's going to get on it. It's going to yeah. get crossed. It'll, it'll get stuck. Yeah. But... The air pressure uh, monitors are extremely good. I've never had one fail, and I have multiple in use. They're, they're extremely accurate, and they work well for years and years and years. And so I think they're called the Tsunami AT1 or something like that. I assume they're still for sale. I've never, I haven't bought one in years because I just don't need them anymore because they keep working. It's just a tube that you, you know, put in your sump at a certain level, and there's a little piece of tubing that goes to a sensor, uh, and it's just extremely reliable because nothing's going to crawl up into that little airspace. Um, and you can you can turn you can set them up to either turn on or off depending upon how you switch the uh, the leads, either turn on or off depending on how level. Uh, and they can be used uh, for all kinds of things. And that's that's the way to keep keep track of your salinity. Other than you know if you take Five gallons of water off and yeah. water chicken. You got to add five gallons. Yeah, back. yeah, yeah. All right, Greg. Well, listen, man. Thank you so much. Um, if anybody's out there looking for some corals, hit Greg up. I, you got you have a website, right, Greg? That uh, you sell corals on. Yeah, I have a website that. Uh, Little old school I website. Have, yeah, it's really really old. Um, the best thing is if if you're looking for something from me, you know, look for me on the Boston Reefer Society. I'll, I post there uh, quite frequently. Uh, or you can you can send me an email directly. Um, I, I don't ship a lot of stuff unless you've got your own FedEx account because I uh, I've gotten burned so many times. I you know uh, I'm willing to ship large orders if people really want a lot of stuff. Uh, the the email that I generally use for that kind of stuff is corals with with plural at greghiller g r e g h i l l e r dot com. Cool. 
All right. Well, listen, Greg, I, again, thank you so much for, for being a guest. And, uh, and I hope we can get you back, uh, you know, next year to talk some more. We didn't even talk about the fish breeding, the captive raised uh, fish oh, and all yeah. that yeah. stuff. I mean, there's a whole bunch, stuff. whole bunch of stuff to talk about that I would love to. But uh, thanks again. Appreciate it. All right. And um, just want to remind everybody that uh, the next show will be next Sunday, November 15th at 7 p.m. Got another great guest. Sanjay Yoshi will be uh, on the show talking. And uh, yeah. He, uh, he's going to be awesome and, and uh, looking forward to it. So until then, everybody be safe, be well, and uh, we'll see you next time. And science will win. And science will win. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Keith. Good talking to you.